Hi, and welcome to Cartwheels on the Sky, Poets, Poems, and Discovery. I'm your host, Blake Moore, and for the next 30 minutes, you're going to get a glimpse into the poems and process of poet John Allen Can. Before I share our conversation, I want you to know a bit about John. He was born in Santa Monica, California, and earned a BA in theater arts at Cornell University during its years of student unrest. Eventually, wordsmithing overtook acting, and he left East to pursue an MA in creative writing at San Francisco State. After graduation, he migrated to Santa Barbara, where Mudborne Press published his first book, Lemurian Rhapsodies. He also hosted his own poetry show, The Unseen Rose, at KCSB. He began Etheric Press and joined California Poets in the Schools to work with kids and poetry, which enhanced his livelihood for the next three decades. He also published Dinosaurism, an Illuminated Manifesto, and Lunch, an Omnimodal Experience. He moved to Sacramento in the mid-80s and later began teaching English at Cosimis River College. A central figure in the Sacramento Library's 2013 award-winning Poe Project, John Allen Can ordered, introduced, and added commentary to The Slender Poe, an anthology of the great American writer's work. A volume of his own poetry, The Moon Over Madrid, followed from I Street Press. On-campus classes were suspended at CRC in March of 2020, so he finished his last semester online living full-time with his wife in Enchanted Meadows in Anchor Bay, California. Like many who hold dear the mystery of poetry, he says he already knows there is not enough time left to read deeply all the great poems that the world treasures, but he will keep at that joyful task as he composes his own work at the edge of history. Here's a conversation we had earlier this week. So, John Allen Tan, it is such a pleasure to have you here with me. Would you like to start us off with a poem? You know, I have had a a little bit of fun going back over all my old stuff, thinking about this radio show, which has been great, to uh, take a long encounter with where where I've come from as writing. And I thought I would read maybe the first poem that I uh, worked hard on that got published in a you know a college book of poems. And uh, but it's it's interesting. It's it's called Halloween and. NYC, New York City. And I remember very much working on this poem uh, diligently in a way that uh, I think I've kept working on poems until they're, they're finished. And so uh, this was uh, the recollection of uh, an experience down in uh, New York City when I was back east at university, and it goes like this. Halloween in NYC. Watching buses pass by, trash, asphalt, leaves. Pedestrians are pinballs with legs, with coats, stooped necks, faces. Noble beasts in automobiles. Someone says, which way? You nod. Leaning on a lamppost, grease, bosoms, ashes. Somehow you haven't enough money. Your reflection in a shop window, someone's glasses, a bubblegum machine. The squeaky trumpets of shopping carts, chicken backs, laundromats, gossip. Something reminds you of memory, self-promises. There was a particular perfume once. Time passes and one forgets everyone's cordial look of terror. Sitting on a john, directions, guidance, phone numbers, dogs, walking masters, you, walking yourself. 
Every doorway is a mirror, a mouth. There is time for a bagel, benches, taxis, dust, a horseback cop eating a cigar. You are a passerby. You ask someone, I was here this morning? They nod. Long circuses of hands, costumes, squints, behavior borrowed from television. There are no clues. There are nothing but clues. Confuse and exit. The elevators have ears, neuroses, throats, an appetite for silence. And then one tells you she thinks with her twat. You look at her like a ruptured prophylactic. There was a certain perfume. Finally, 30 cents and the subway. Drool, twitches, sweat. You are given a seat, letters never written, a stick of deodorant. You shall sit for a long time. Never again can you close your eyes or open them. <laughs> Perfect timing for an October show. <laughs> yes, it's true. So you want to talk about yourself as a poet and your background, how you came to choose poetry as your calling and your expression. Well, you know, I grew up in a household where language was kind of a, a big deal, not a storytelling household. My mother was a journalist, my father a lawyer. So language and how you use language was always a kind of a, you know, it's always up front. And I spent a good deal of my early years being corrected on my grammar. Uh, but I, I suppose the inception began with listening to songs on the radio and kind of getting excited about the, the words knocking about in my head. And then I wrote a little bit. I wrote a kind of a poem in junior high school. But it was in high school that I began writing kind of seriously. Uh, and then when I was in college, I, oh, though I studied theater, I was, always, I was always writing. And this poem was one of the things that I, 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 I produced at that time. And then when I graduated from, uh, from Cornell, I, 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 by that time I realized the theater wasn't really going to be the place for me. And I wanted, uh, by that time I knew I was, I was really uh, destined to be, <laughs> you know, this vocation of writing poetry, which was, you know, as somebody once said to me, kind of a, a vow of poverty. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I did have the good fortune of working with A.R. Ammons, uh, at Cornell, and he uh, he was very very generous and kind, and and actually talked talk, talked me into making my first little uh, pamphlet of poems. So uh, at that point, uh, I came home uh, to Pacific Palisades for the year between college and uh, grad school, and I wrote and I lived and uh, I made a very concerted effort to make sure I was going to be in uh, the writing program at San Francisco State, and uh, I was accepted. And so then I went to San Francisco and spent uh, 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 a couple of years in that place. And uh, one of the poems that I wrote uh, that ended up in my manuscript goes like this. So this is where I was uh, moving Perfect. towards. I was influenced a lot by surrealism. Uh, during my year off, I spent a lot of time reading about Dadaism and Surrealism and, and feeling a kind of European uh, experience. And so this is called The Elastic Taboo. He climbs out of the wishing well into a room full of jade feathers. 
the organ grinder's monkey only has one hand. He pirouettes and gallops down the hallway of ice into the den where a tent is set up. Inside, Gandhi and Monroe are throwing dice. On the floor, there is a volume of verse, How to Succeed with Guilt. He goes to the closet, opens it. A meadow of empty stages lays before him. In the distance, an Amazon with lace of flames holds her conch, playing in the mood. With shoes of mud, he steps into a stream of Quantro. He dissolves into an apricot cloud that the ivory zeppelin falls in love with and follows to the end of the earth. So, once I was done, uh, you know, I did, I did get a, I did at San Francisco State, I did get engaged with a, a kind of a poet survival class, and that class uh, involved me in poets in the schools. What, what's a poet survival class? Is in how to be a poet in the world? Yeah, it was a, a you know, it, 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 for me and several of my uh, my peers, including my lady friend at the time, um, we were put in a situation of a kind of internship in a, a third grade classroom. Uh, other uh, people were kind of trained how to you know to to send work out and the like. But it seemed like it was a way of grappling with uh, the future of of someone who decided that, you know, language was going to be what they were working with. I didn't even know that such a thing existed. You know, the track for a poet is, of course, to get your MFA and then ultimately teach and then hope teaching and that work gets you national recognition and perhaps your track to the Poet Laureate of the United States, right? Or a Nobel Prize for your writing or something like that, correct? Well, I, I suppose that is, you know, a trajectory, but there were, you know, everybody comes with their own inclinations and disinclinations, uh, which I'm sure you've encountered as far as uh, how to make your way uh, as a poet. Uh, in 1973, 1974, 75, the whole notion of a master's class or, or, or program, an MFA or a master's in, in creative writing which turns into poetry, uh, was there was just at the beginning of that onslaught, which now there are writing programs all over the country, and of course the country's generating poets all the time. So it's, it, it's, it can be pretty competitive out there for, you know, slim pickings in a way. But the main thing is you just keep writing, and you keep working at your, your, your craft, and uh, uh, if you're lucky, like the Thursday, last Thursday, uh, at down at the uh, Point Arena uh, Cafe, uh, where I read, you have a moment like that. You know, you have these little moments where you share your work. Do you feel that yourself as a poet, that the craft of writing, of course, is solitary, right? You and your thoughts and your pen or however you put your words down on paper. And then those moments when... You get to read them out loud. For me, I don't want to say it's the whole point, but I definitely, as a poet, live for that part of it, the expression or having somebody else say, "I that's exactly what I was thinking, but I couldn't put that in words, you know, or you just captured this thing that I've been grappling with or whatever that is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, you a poet may need, you know, a few really good readers, a few really good friends who are honest, who are receptive, uh, and that, 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 that can be all you need, really, uh, to, to, um, 
to keep at it. The main thing is you to keep writing. You know, after that first early, you know, writing about relationships and passion and that whole notion of keeping writing is really a challenge with you and your own imagination. You mean just the idea of staying inspired? Yes, keeping yeah. at it, keeping something yeah. new, keeping something in front of you that you want to write about, uh, keeping open to the the wind moving through you, if you will. What, what inspires you the most? Well, it's a number of things. Uh, I've been inspired by the beach down here at Anchor Bay uh, and have a whole long, I've been working kind of poems in the open air, uh, writing uh, things that are happening in the in the weather and along the beach. And then there's the, the poems of ideas where you, for some reason, an idea uh, or uh, a, a quote or something that you're studying. And the poem almost is like a, a a product of that research of that inquiry. It's the fruit, if you will. And then there's the you know the the occasional poem that you that you write. Here's one that I wrote on a camping trip in the Boy Scouts, and I, I remember I wrote this poem, "Walking Back." It's, uh, it was written in desolation up uh, in the uh, Sierras, and uh, I had a vision of the the, the monk. Uh, poet, Cold Mountain, uh, sort of acquired by the, the Jen people, but a, a Chinese fellow, and he, he appeared to me. The poem goes like this, I, I dream of Cold Mountain in desolation. He stood on the other shore across the jeweled waters, his long beard white as the full moon, just above Ralston Peak. Finger to his lips, eyes crazy joyful. We listened a long while to the wind tell its old story over and over again in the ancient pines until a solitary cloud drifted into the sky and melted away in the dawn. I just want to remind you that you're listening to Cartwell's On the Sky. I'm your host, Blake Moore, and I'm speaking with Mendocino County poet John Allen Can. So I remember that poem was composed as I was walking, and I kept going over it and memorizing the lines. And then when I yeah. got to where we were going uh, near the cars, I wrote it down. So that's one of those gift poems that you have as you're outside and you're being inspired, and you, you generate it as you're walking. So it has the rhythm of the walking and the, right. uh, that, that sense that it has to be, it, it can be memorized. <laughs> Yeah. Do you find that poems come to you whole, or do they come to you in snippets? Both. Uh, oh. Right now I'm working on a, a sequence of poems that are, I'm calling dispatches. And um, they are, you know, it, we're living in a kind of perilous time, it seems like. We have all these different things that are going on that are that are outside the poet's ken. You know, there's political things and climate things and and uh, you know famine things and all kinds of things and trying and there's great writing about what's going on in the world so to distill it uh, that's that's something that you know you want to you want to you want to be of the day of the present and yet you want to say something that has a timeless quality about it I know this is something in your own work you seem to be very you know uh, cognizant to things that are going on in the the body politic and the political body right. politic, as well as as the natural world, 
And so those those poems sometimes they're they're almost from bits and pieces. I have stacks of of, of loose papers that I, I jot things down on, and then I I put them together uh, in that sort of write them down first in maybe one of my journals, and then there's the, the kind of magic moment, which is I'm reluctant to do, actually, when I take it to the typewriter, when I take it to the computer and I begin to play with it, how it looks on the page. And so, why are you reluctant to do that? What's the reluctance about? Well, you know, that's interesting. Uh, it, that's, <clears throat> that's the final moment. When you type it up, it seems like that's you're, you're, it's no longer it's the final end of the process, right? Now, I'm getting better at, <clears throat> I mean, I've, I'm basically a, a, a poet who writes by, you know, I, I believe that the poem happens for me best <clears throat> through my hand, through the breath, through my pencil, uh, you know, on the paper, uh, almost a kind of uh, the way I print. It's almost like over the years has turned into a kind of visual calligraphy, my own little style of, of printing how I write. And so there's that sense of that encounter of, 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 of instrument on the page, and and there's something physical about that. Whereas I've never felt that typing is that physical. It's like you know, it's it's too easy. It's facile, you know. Right. And so uh, when I take it to the typewriter, I know I'm in my last phase. Not that things don't change, because the ultimate change for a refinement of a poem is uh, reading it out loud. So once I've typed it up. Then I'll start reading it out loud, and uh, I might type it up and print it out and take it down to the beach, actually, or take it somewhere and, and, and read it out loud. So the ocean has been my, my great uh, silent, uh, well, not silent. Not but silent, but your audience. The ocean is such a great, I like the forest as well. Yeah. I had an experience one time where I was working on a, something, and I was memorizing my poems. For, I, I had about, for a while, I had over 45 minutes of poetry in my head. I was doing a poetry play with another poet. And it was an hour and a half long. And so I had, you know, a lot of my own poems memorized. And I was walking and working on this poem, and I got to the top of this clearing over a bowl overlooking Muir Woods up on Panoramic, that whole area of Mount Camelpias. And I did this poem, and the trees erupted as I finished. And it felt like a stadium of 20,000 people just cheering for me. My whole body just got goosebumps all the way up, and I was thinking, oh, this is why people go for the fame. It was undescribable, and I just felt so acknowledged by the universe without having to deal with paparazzi and all the other things. It was really quite an experience. I'm sure the ocean's giving you something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up going down to the beach uh, in Santa Monica, and uh, then in, I lived nine years in uh, Santa Barbara, and the beach was uh, within walking distance. And now it's really... And then the summer, our summer, we used to go up to Carpinteria just outside Santa Barbara when I was a kid. That was where we would uh, vacation. And so in a way, uh, Anchor Bay Beach is a little bit like Carpinteria Beach as far as a beach that's from my childhood that I've got. I've ended up in that sort of place where the, the magical is ever-present. Do you like to read us another poem? Yeah. Uh, you know, I thought I'd read something from uh, Moon, Over the Mid Moon Over Madrid, uh, the book that I that we exchanged, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And it's a poem about sort of the process or the adventure of, uh, of becoming a writer. It's called Ode to the Left-Hand Path. Mm -hmm. And the left-hand path is the path that one takes when um, 
uh, where you are no longer suffices, where you have to uh, make a, a, a move. It's uh, a notion from Joseph Campbell that the left-hand path is the one for the artist who has to trail, make a blaze a trail that doesn't, no one else has gone. And so this is called Ode to the Left-Hand Path. From my earliest cognition, I felt a kilter, a skew. I didn't fit in with what others surmised of me, nor did the rituals of our village make any sense. Sundays on a hard bench or pinning the nose on a donkey? There was a ship within me that wanted to tilt into uncharted waters, ready to engage sea monsters and typhoons. My bliss beckoned. At 17, a gnome appeared between pages of a book of poems found on a bench near the edge of town. The gnome looked at me with bright green eyes, and though tiny as a sparrow, took hold of my hand fiercely and drew me off into the woods where there was nothing to do but bushwhack through the forest of objections until a clear space opened and though what lay ahead was nothing at all like anything I'd ever beheld before and no words for it yet existed in the alphabet of adventure as if in the company of the naked beloved I carried on. Without any compass save intuition, I ventured through atonal grass, crossed the river of quicksilver abstractions, and nearly lost my way in the mountains of transparent enigma. Always, for the first time, I move where no one else has ever been. I feather along the razor's edge until I spot footprints of some powerful creature possibly a sphinx of some kind, and by stealth and perseverance follow its strange tracks through a labyrinthine thicket where only ghosts dwell, and after what feels like the end of time, at last I find its den in the mirrored chamber of my heart. There you have it. I like the way you read that. That was just a beautiful trajectory through the poem. The left-hand path, yes. One thing you said when you were talking a minute ago is you said you typed them on the typewriter. Is that true? Well, I guess I did type them for a long time on a typewriter. I guess I always think of the keyboard as kind of a typewriter. Okay. I just was wondering. I, I saw you with a Smith Corona and carbon paper, and I thought, really? Wow. Corona, yeah, <laughs> as a matter of fact. And when my mom – and I, and I got in the – I guess I – I had two, two little small typewriters that I carried along for a long time. And for a long time, I didn't have a typewriter that I really wanted to work on. I, I borrowed uh, people's uh, Selectrics. Sometimes I would go into offices after, uh, when I was working at a school, I would, uh, the principal and I would have a talk, and he'd say, oh, yeah, here's a key. You can come in and, during the weekend and type your poems up. And so uh, it, <laughs> uh there you have it. You know, it's a, now it's the computer, and it's great. It stores things, uh, and going over the poems, I have. You know, it's been interesting how many different files I have of poems of certain phases and certain periods. It's been interesting preparing for this. You know, I did want to share one thing, though, kind of a fun thing, if you don't mind. Of course, it's it's a manifesto I wrote during the, um, the early '80s. 
and uh, it's called it's it's a manifesto for my movement, uh, dinosaurism. I was fascinated by dinosaurs when I was a kid, as many kids are, and so I thought, well, okay, it's, uh, let's see how we can mythologize uh, dinosaurism. So I'm just going to read you a, a few things in one poem from uh, my manifesto, which was performed a couple times uh, in in different congregations variations in both Santa Barbara and Hollywood. So I address the growing interest in dinosaurism. Without question, dinosaurism is moving slowly, yet considering that dinosaurism's aesthetics have taken innumerable centuries to formulate, it's no wonder grand things move without haste. As the main promulgator of this movement, I present this manifesto with an urgent humility both asserting and yielding in the same gesture. Dinosaurism brings us around to the beginning again, where our origins are already leaving us. In a sense, dinosaurism is evolution eating its own tail. Dinosaurism possesses no schedule for success. It is unregrettably the most unhurried movement of the 20th century. You might say this manifesto has literally taken millions of years to write. It arises out of a thoroughly monumental hesitancy, delectations of ease, sometimes even profound laziness have been associated with dinosaurism. And rightly so, though do bear always in mind that dinosaurism offers the silence of a carboniferous dawn whose dew transmutes into an amniotic bath both egg and reptile spring from. What is dinosaurism? An unhatched egg of data filling the hole left by vorticism, surmounting the smudge remaining of abstract expressionism, purloining the window mirror of surrealism, equally as grave as existentialism, more minimal than minimalism, more inclusive than op. Such is dinosaurism. If dinosaurism founds itself on the premise all time is simultaneous in the mind, then it is no surprise so many of these so-said monsters of the past find their most liberating modern appearance in parables and poems. An example, the parable of the Allosaurus. The Allosaurus is kind of a version of the Tyrannosaurus Rex, but a different time, but basically the upright theropod. Parable of the Allosaurus. One day, an Allosaurus came upon a still pool by way of an overhanging cliff, equally as far from the shimmering liquid surface as the water was deep. For the first time in this Carnosaurus career, he beheld his own visage, and his small brain was seized both by attraction and repulsion. His heart conflagrated in a swirl of admiration and disgust. Such a titanic ambivalence mounted in this creature, such a violence of confrontation with his own image, being both seduced and rejected, that his last gesture was to drown while simultaneously kissing and devouring his own reflection. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. That's a lot of fun. Yes. Well, thank you, John, Alan, Can. 
What a great name. We're out of time, so it's been wonderful to have you with me here on Cartwheels on the Sky. Well, Fabulous poem. It's Fabulous. Great. Great to be here. I hope uh, it might happen again sometime in the future. Yeah, me too. I think it will. Thanks a lot, Blake. And there we have it. John Allen Can on Cartwheels on the Sky. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Blake Moore, and I hope you all have a beautiful Saturday night. Keep tuning in, and I'll be back next month with another poet with more cartwheels on the sky. Be well.